She was born into the upper echelons of Irish society. Her tumultuous life led her from Buckingham Palace to an assassination attempt on Il Duce in Rome. This is the story of Violet Gibson. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Out of Ireland podcast. Oshin here, and I'm joined by Connor and the very esteemed Dara Heard. Dara, how are you today? Yeah, very good, Oshin. How are you? Why am I not esteemed? Good, good. good. Uh, you're, <laughs> esteemed. you're just not esteemed. You're dirty brown water trash. Dirty brown trash water. That's what you are. Bin, and is, bin juice. And is Dara, is Dara clean because his water has been esteemed? Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> you brought that upon yourself true so folks anyone been up to anything this week i've just been working um editing wedding photos so that's all i've been doing were you not much welcome me dog how's your puppy she's good she uh i taught her how to howl a little bit today so she it sounded really funny it kind of it was like wow 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 she sounded like a dinosaur in training but i think it was the start of learning an actual howl so <laughs> dinosaur in training yeah it's or, a no, common be- it's a common touch point <laughs> everyone knows what a dinosaur in training sounds like it's no, makes like our a... podcast universal <laughs> i don't know i'll send it to you guys it's relatable it really weird. yeah you know when your neighbor gets a new dinosaur and is training it up you guys you, okay what does this sound like to you that's me that's not the dog <laughs> what the fuck does that sound like <laughs> A dinosaur in training, I think, would be it. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I did actually go out for a cycle yesterday. Um, I had a friend who needed a puncture repaired. So I got all my tools. We spent ages trying to get the tire uh, the wheel, the tire off the bike. or the What do you call it? The tire off the rim. Um, and then we got it off and we realized the fucking wheels were, the tires were like tubeless tires. Uh, <laughs> how did tubeless like don't they just not get flat or what's the crack oh well i don't know they got flat so then we pumped it up found the leak on the outside so then we just Uh, stuck a patch over the outside tire and just super wrapped it loads of electrical tape and it did work (laughs) but i really don't think that should work no (laughs) it'll work for a bit yeah they the person in question got home so oh well then that's fine yeah Hmm. so this week we're talking about violet gibson which, as always, is another lovely name. And she's a very interesting woman that, in a way, has kind of been left out of... Um, I guess maybe her role in history isn't that significant, but at the same time, what she could have done, or what she came within inches, literally centimeters of doing, is extremely significant. So, yeah, that's why we, I guess we think she needs a platform so people can hear better. I had an idea of who she was. I've heard of her name before, but I didn't realize how... how disturbing i think it was her life was quite difficult and it was it wasn't as straightforward as i as i thought it was yeah it was kind of it was very much on purpose that happened though right it was very she's kind of been written out of the history yeah which that happened to grania whale as well well not shackleton he was extremely written in but maybe we'll uh this will be a bit of a we'll repeat ourselves by doing people who have gotten shunted in the annals of history i think even from my point of view though it was just sad how difficult her life was and the care that she would have been provided wasn't great. So even though she was well heed and she's from a wealthy family, it just wasn't, they just kind of forgot about her and just left her. 
Yeah, there's going to be a hard podcast to make fun jokes at. This is, yeah. it gets quite sad a lot of times. <laughs> so get them in uh, now. Yeah. <laughs> we'll find, we'll find we'll, <laughs> She was born. <laughs> she was born. It was all downhill from there, to be honest. So Violet was born in 1876 in Marion Row in Dublin. So right in the heart of Dublin City. And she was born into quite a wealthy family. Uh, I'm pretty sure they had like kind of butlers and servants and they were kind of like, um, were they Anglo-Irish guys? Or were they just Irish-Irish? Yeah, They're Anglo-Irish. Anglo-Irish yeah. And I think the census showed that they had 11 servants or butlers. So very well off. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Just 11 yeah, though. Like, just so you're not, like... you know, you're not, you have to do some stuff but... for yourself. You probably have to lift your own food to your mouth. So yeah, there was eight, eight kids, so you know, just yeah, yeah one each. But... I wonder, did they have somebody wipe their wipe them? Because <laughs> 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 the Queen has an official bum wiper, so I what? wonder when does it start? Sorry, when you start bum wiper? The Queen had they did not include no, this in the crown, <laughs> definitely used to. I don't think they had to do it anymore. I'm pretty sure, yeah, but I wonder when it stopped. Yeah. there was like an official term, and it was a really prestigious job because mm. you could like have intimate conversations with the king or queen while you were, you know. I don't think I'd want anyone discussing anything with me. <laughs> Do you reckon when they stop, like, did that stop at a certain point? Was it like, okay, the new monarchy and we're stopping the bum wiping? Or was it like a king after going out in the lash and the next day your mom was like, nope, not doing this <laughs> anymore. <laughs> no. I am not doing that again. I'm not doing it again. <laughs> you can wipe your own arse, you shit. This, you shit and then you wipe. This is the worst tangent we've ever gone on. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, but I'm editing, so we're keeping it in. Right back. <laughs> okay, so we're assuming that Violet probably had, they had about 10 or 11 servants, but probably not one. Not <laughs> no, I don't think so. So her father was Edward Gibson, who was an Irish lawyer, and he was also a politician. He was also awarded the title of Duke of Ashburn. Baron. What was it? Baron of Ashburn. What was it? Lord of Ashburn. He was Baron. L- well, he was Lord first, and then when he became the Chancellor of Ireland, I think he became a Baron. Okay. That makes sense? So her father was the Baron of Ashburn, which we're not too sure what that is, but it's quite a prestigious title. And it, there's there's a guy today who still kind of has the title, or he's in line to have it or something, so it's something that's been passed on for many years. Well, there's the, the Lord Chancellor of Ireland is probably the more important one. So it, it was the highest, uh, essentially the highest judge and like a speaker in Parliament. So he kind of had a high office in Ireland. Direct links to Buckingham Palace. Yeah. Yeah, so like uh, Violet even was a debutante at Buckingham Palace back when Buckingham Palace used to do debutante balls. So when she became 18, it's like you're presented to the world as eligible for marriage. Okay, and the family all ended up in Buckingham Palace. Do you, does anyone have that story? Because I don't have it. Uh, it's it's not much of a story. It's just, um, yeah, Buckingham. They went over to Buckingham Palace for her debutante ball. I don't know if her other sisters were over. Um, but she was definitely there when she was turning 18. Um, and a debutante ball is just when women are presented to become young women um, and to be matched with other bachelors. Um, and it was during like society season. Have you like I, I'd never heard of this. Uh, and society season just seemed to be if you were young, upper class, you were out five nights a week at different houses and like at different balls and it's all very pride and prejudice and it sounds like freshers week in college or something <laughs> yeah but for a whole summer it goes like and it's all around like ascot and wimbledon and like all the posh sport things oh yeah and very heavily directed by the parents as well oh yeah they're all like waiting in the wings so that was her upbringing really uh going to these 
footballs and being in high society and like her brothers all went to universities like high prestige universities or colleges so they went to trinity college in oxford and cambridge and uh, her sisters kind of stayed at home and learned needlework and and really weren't stressed with any kind of strenuous mental activity yeah again that was more to do with society than their own capabilities obviously it was just that that that's what women did yeah. and that's what men did so yeah and her father like we said he was a baron but he was also a very staunch unionist so he, he opposed anything to do with kind of irish republicanism or ireland's quest to be um, an independent country which was kind of happening around the time so that's kind of what he was he was a very reserved um unionist yeah so we we should probably say she was born 1876 so late 1800s early 1900s you have a lot of revolutions and labor movements not just in ireland but like all around europe and the world really her mother was francis who was a devoted christian scientist which is a very interesting religion which had just kind of started over in america around this time and it had spread over into kind of the upper echelons of society in ireland and england but um yeah i was looking into them and christian scientists they believe that medicine doesn't work and that the only way you can, like your illnesses come from sin and the only way you can cure your illnesses is through prayer. Yeah. And and isn't that it, when you got an illness that it was a punishment for, it was like a penance. Do you know when you used mm-hmm. to get like, you go to communion when you were a kid and you'd be told to say three Hail Marys, they'd be like, oh no, you've got typhus for the next couple of years. Poor El Violet, she was a sick child. Yeah, she was a really, she was a really sick child. So I, I, I don't know now, growing up in this sort of household, like, I, I doubt that could have been very, um, I, it was probably not, not good. It was, well, sorry, but... <laughs> 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 I was like, I'm choking on a fucking cock. <laughs> I was going to say it sounded like your, uh, your internet connection had just cut out and you're like, eh, 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 eh. but that was just how you spoke. <laughs> I was trying not to cough, but I just kept coming. <laughs> Yeah, but that obviously wouldn't have worked very well for Violet living the way she did. But weirdly enough, Christian science is actually still quite popular. There's about 50,000 people in America still practicing it. So, um, And every now and again, there's these court cases that pop up because parents uh, parents essentially let their kids die because they're expecting the prayers to heal the kids as opposed to the medicine that could easily heal the children. So in some cases, it's gone to courts and the parents have actually been ruled innocent for killing their children because they genuinely believed that prayer would have helped. So it's it goes down to like motive, I guess. But um, yeah, it's just, it's just crazy. I saw that it was often ill-defined as hysteria or that she had a violent temper. So I think this is a hint of what was to come, I think. But they obviously didn't know what it was. They just tried to pray it away. <laughs> yeah, well, there was also some literal ones because um, apparently as a teenager, she had pleurisy, peritonitis, and rubella. Oh, so I'd imagine those and scarlet fever, yeah, oh, and a scarlet, absolutely mm, scarlet of all them. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> she showed interest in Christian Science as well, though, didn't she? And then she eventually converted to becoming Catholic. When she was yeah, she she was quite a religious, devoted person. Like she had a lot of love for her God. Um, and she, you know, at the age of 21, her father gave her an independent income. So that, that's nice, being able to go off and do whatever you want. So with that money, she kind of used it to travel and to learn about religion around the world. Um, but it was during these travels that she kind of d- 
decided that she wanted to become a Roman Catholic. So then in 1902, I think, or 1903? Yeah, 1902, yep. 1902, she became a Roman Catholic and her family, like she essentially, that's almost like coming out as being gay to your family in this era. Like they were disgusted, basically. Yeah, well, especially like Anglo-Irish Unionists, it would have been like almost the exact opposite. And she was pretty influenced by her brother as well, who kind of did almost as bad a thing as she did by becoming a socialist, essentially, didn't he, when he was over in Oxford? Yeah, yeah, so the brother kind of... Willie, was it? Yeah, it was Willie. Uh, And he is the one who introduced her to Christian socialism, which is, I mean, it sounds pretty decent if you... It's just like being sound and sharing the love, yeah. It's, it's, It's generally just like love thy neighbors is what they kind of go by and they're like try and spread the wealth so yeah but it's i guess the young kids rebelling against the ideals of the father but the ideals of the father sounded kind of shitty so she was 26 at this stage so she wasn't that young uh but i just think it's brilliant like i'm going to rebel i'm going to become really religious yeah <laughs> <laughs> screw you dad <laughs> but yeah so like through her brother she kind of got really interested in uh you know, in, in poverty and in socialism and kind of social justice issues. And then she also had the the love for religion, the love for her God at the time. So, yeah, kind of a, kind of interesting. So then at the age of 26, she moved over to Chelsea in England and she fell in love with a artist, uh, a lovely man. And the two lived happily ever after. And that's the end of this, this yep. episode. See you next week. Yeah. Nope. No, actually, he died. And... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> She then that this this I feel like was the turning point anyway in any of the sources I was reading where like when she married him it was kind of the happiest she'd ever be yeah and ever was and then once he died she spiraled she completely spiraled and she got multiple bouts of illnesses and then she she agreed to devote her life to charity and religion I, I think what I found so interesting with that is that she moved to Chelsea because it was like the bohemian like low income area of London. Like, you know, Chelsea now is mm. ridiculously upper class. Oh, I thought that was Chelsea, the, like, football team place. Yeah, it's not. it is, yeah. It's, well, I think it's specifically... Is that in London? Yeah. Specifically, though, I think... Is it not, like, a separate Kenham. town called Chelsea or something? It's an area. It's, like, rough okay. Farnham. I don't, or... I don't know anything about England. <laughs> you don't know anything about much. <laughs> no, but much to do about nothing. Specifically, I think it was Kensington, which I've never been, but I've heard it's posh. Yeah, and can I just say something else? Um... I think it, it hints a lot there. So we said that she was married and had a widow, but there's no record of who her widow was. There is his name at all. Did they get married or are they just engaged? Um, I have it that she was married. Oh, I thought it was just she was engaged to be married. Well, maybe. But this, I mean, that's kind of illustrates how little information there is on her. Yeah. I would have thought if she'd got married, though, there'd be marriage records, though. Yeah, I just have here by the by 1913 Gibson had married to uh had been married to an artist and widowed. Oh, okay. I didn't yeah. know that. No, anything I've seen hasn't said that, but yeah, yeah I mean it, it does speak to it about how little we know about her, so. Yeah, and even any of the sources I did, did I was reading or I was looking at they they referenced a lot of her parents and her siblings' lives. They tried to build the world around her and then use nuggets of her information that they or the information mm. that they had on her to build that up. But they didn't have that much information on her. So it's quite interesting that way. Mm. Uh, I feel like we should say our sources like, well, for me, my two biggest ones are like the book, The Woman Who Shot Mussolini by Francis Saunders and... Mm. There's a RTE documentary on one, the Irish woman who shot Mussolini by Siobhan Lynham. Uh, and they're, they're, they're incredible. So if you're enjoying this, go listen and read that. 
So after the death of her husband, she decided to devote her life to charity and prayer. But at the same time, she was also plagued by uh, with multiple bouts of illnesses. Some of them were actual physical ailments, but in a lot of cases, the doctors simply just put it down to hysteria. And hysteria is kind of an interesting thing because it's a gendered thing. Like only somebody with a uterus can be classed as having hysteria. Obviously, it's an umbrella term for a multitude of mental illnesses. It was just an undefined mental illness. It was yeah, an umbrella term for all mental illnesses, which was known very little at the time, I guess. Yeah, and I'd imagine it was quite demeaning, like, oh, she's just got hysteria, she's a woman. Yeah. You know, I, mm. I feel like it was from that sort of very nasty kind of perspective. Mm. But, uh, so obviously, look, it just didn't help. She obviously wasn't getting the help. I don't know, did the help even exist at the time for someone with this, you know, massive amount of grief and loss and actual physical ailments? Yeah. But anyway, so with the outbreak of World War One, Violet became very upset. Um, the source I was reading said that she was an ardent pacifist and extremely against the war. So she, she moved to Paris and she began to work as an activist for peace. But even in Paris, she got sick again. It was seemed to follow her around everywhere. And then seeing what Mussolini was doing to Italy, where he had formed a fascist party and he was really coming down hard on the working class, it disgusted her and it upset her and it just put her into a spiral of anger and hate and just all sorts of things kind of spun together. Yeah, there's a lot of stories about her having episodes i don't know what's the polite way to say this but there's one of her wandering around kensington with a kitchen knife in her hand uh, with the bible open on the story of abraham sacrificing isaac so yeah not in the best mental space or mental headspace yeah um it's interesting when she went to paris she was working with uh sylvia plankhurst if you know her she's the suffragette it's kind of really influential in, in the suffragette movement and like pacifist movement and it's just kind of cool that she was in that same realm. Again, to not know about her and to have been involved at that high level is pretty amazing. So while Violet was in Paris getting involved in the suffragette movement, uh, Mussolini was kind of making his moves in Italy. So like interwar Italy is really interesting. It, it didn't really have a solid government. So like World War One, before World War One in Italy, they had only the upper class could vote. And then they promised post-World War One that uh, soldiers would be able to vote when they came back. And it led to this huge kind of socialist swelling in Italy. And people like Mussolini, who had at first dodged the war, dodged World War One, um, he came back and he was part of the socialist movement, got kind of kicked out of the socialist movement for, I'm not, he, there's a lot, a lot of different reasons, but he got kicked out of the socialist movement and gradually kind of shifted more and more to the right and became more and more nationalistic. And there was small groups of fascists kind of uh, going against all the lockouts and all the, or sorry, going against all the strikes all over Italy. And um, yeah, this kind of led to him uniting all these fascist groups. And one thing I, I just kind of always find interesting about Mussolini is he was kind of the first fascist, like Hitler looked to him for inspiration. So like the fascist salute, what you think of like the Hitler salute, that was Mussolini's first. And he was a bit of a propaganda master as well, wasn't he? Yeah. The of images all over. Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. He's very like, um, Putin does that now, like he literally bareback on a horse and, you know, shows himself as a man of the people and stuff. So he was able to like nationalize Italian. You, you guys don't ride your horses bareback? <laughs> What? People don't do this? 
Yeah, well, but naked. So I ride my horse. <laughs> just gripping with your Irish cheeks. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Going back, uh, I guess Nazi is not, not, Jesus Christ, Nazism. Is it Nazism? Fascism? No, but like Hitler's fascism is it slightly different, like, because they're the oh, Aryan okay. race. Oh, yeah. Hitler would have seen the Aryan race as part of all of Europe, while Mussolini saw it as we were before them. Well, if you imagine Mussolini would have been like the Roman Empire, you know, always living in the shadow of the greats. Yeah, exactly. That's what he, was, he was trying to rebuild it. Yeah, he was trying to rebuild the entire um, Roman Empire. So, yeah, he was thinking of Caesar and all them guys. But he, like, definitely modeled himself as, like, the new Caesar. Do you know? He also wrote a, a an erotic novel. Do you know that? No. Yeah, it was great. It's called uh, The Cardinal's Mistress, and he described it himself as a novel for seamstresses and scandal and a nasty book. That was his words. Uh, it was like an anti-religion. Nasty book. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a anti-religion book essentially when he was uh, still a socialist and was trying to take down the church. No, no wonder Violet then hated him. He was yeah, she wasn't a fan. Her beautiful religion. <laughs> Well, in, in in Violet's eyes, like Italy was kind of the, the poster child of Catholicism in Europe, or I guess in the world, because, you know, of course, the Vatican is in there. And, you know, it, for her, it was this beautiful, sacred place that um, Mussolini was desecrating with his black shirts and his propaganda and his smutty novels that I just learned about. So. Yeah, I guess for her as well, she had traveled there a lot as a kid with her dad and she had this idealistic idea of Italy as, you know, the cradle of democracy and the most perfect place and very holy as you're saying and she saw him as attacking that so for her italy had this special place and mussolini was changing what it was to be italian in her mind yeah but for most of us that's just we just kind of hold that in and we'd be like oh my god i don't like this person and that's it but violet decided to uh, set some, something in motion and she decided to move to rome yeah but before she moved to rome she this is where we see her first mental breakdown or and when she was committed to a mental asylum. Okay. And she was declared insane after that. Um, She had all these big ideas that God wanted her to kill someone as a sacrifice. So that's why she would have been committed originally. Um, and she was in there for two years and herself and a nurse called Mary McGrath moved to, to Rome where they moved into a convent then. So again, going to where she felt kind of home, but also... Yeah, a convent as well, so religion. So she, it was her safe place, I guess. Yeah, Mary McGrath's from Meath as well. So yeah, she's she? uh, one of you two. Aww. Do you know any McGraths that are nurses? Nope. <laughs> nurse. no. I know there's a few McGraths, yeah, but I mean. <laughs> I wrote down here, they arrived in Rome in November 1974. Wow, she must have been old. <laughs> <laughs> really good at writing notes. Yeah, uh, 24. That would make more sense, yeah. Yeah, so she arrived in Rome when she's 24, which makes her 48 years old. So that we, I feel like there's big no, gaps. No, she wasn't 24. Life. No, in 19, she arrived yeah, in Rome yeah. in 1924 and she was 48. Yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry. So double 24. And <laughs> just some quick maths for you there. It's not all history and jokes, Darren. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I just feel like there's big gaps in her life that we've got. Do you know, we, uh, we have her moving to London at 21 traveling a bit you know losing a husband losing a brother and then she's 48 
Yeah, well, she's working in Paris, then she went back to England, I'd imagine. Then she was committed for a couple of years. So, like, yeah, I'd imagine there was a lot of hospital stays in and around that. Yeah. Um, I, and the next big event that we have is one year later. So she's in Rome for a year. She gets hold of a gun and she shoots herself in the chest. And she was lucky to survive because the bullet hit off a rib. So... Yeah, and that was after the, well, I don't know how linked these are, but it was very close to the leader of the Socialist Party being murdered by Mussolini. So a uh, guy, Mariotti, he was like really horribly murdered. I don't want to go That Italian you. accent, wow. I know, I've been practicing. Uh, <laughs> I did one semester of, I did one semester of Italian before. <laughs> Can I tell you this? In Boston, is it? Yeah, I did a semester of Italian and I, the guy came in and he didn't speak, he wouldn't speak any like English through the whole class. So the whole time he was just being Italian. So he came in the first day and he's like, mi chiamo, mi, like pointing to himself and like, mi chiamo Brian O'Connor. Like, Mate, your name's Brian O'Connor. You're more Irish than I am. Say English, Brian. How are you doing? Yeah. Anyway, she was really affected by the murder of Mariotti, who was the leader of the Socialist Party. So he was like horrifically murdered. And I won't go into it. If you want to look it up, it's, um, yeah, he's basically dumped in a forest and they mutilated his body. And it kind of outraged a lot of Italy at the time. So even though it was swinging more like away from socialist movements at the time and towards fascism, this was a big setback for fascism. Um, and Violet really was affected. Um, and yeah, it's it's kind of, it seems like she may have tried to shoot herself in the convent church because she made a little altar for herself. So almost as a sacrifice in his place, almost. Okay. So in her eyes, she kind of thought that by sacrificing her own life, she'd be appeasing God in a way, uh, which would atone for Mussolini, like either kill Mussolini or something. But in obviously this woman is quite mentally ill at this stage and she's lived her entire life with this never getting treated appropriately. So you know, for her to actually think that shooting herself and killing herself would make Mussolini go away, it was quite far-fetched. But it's it's quite an Old Testament-style thing, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's, it's biblical. It's... That is biblical as fuck, yeah. Her family were obviously very worried about her at this stage. Um, she was a woman in her late 40s who had just tried to shoot herself, which was, well, you know, very sensational. And at the time, the family would not have wanted this to get around, especially an upper-class family. This would have been a huge embarrassment to the family. So they they tried their best to get her they tried their best to get her home, to get her back to England. Um, but she really didn't want to go back and she knew she'd just be committed. So she healed up with her nurse, and then her and the nurse went to a different convent, I think, still in Italy. The next thing yeah, the next thing that hit knocked her back badly was in March nineteen twenty six. So just a year after she shot herself, her mother passed away. So that really, really kind of pushed her down and refocused her interpretation of God wanting to kill her, kill somebody. And that person was now Mussolini, really trained on him. Yeah, it seems that she got very lucid during this time. She got very clear in what she wanted to do. Remember I said about Mariotti, who was murdered, the socialist leader. He had like a show trial at the time. So Mussolini, seeing that popular opinion was kind of against the fascist movement, he found some people... I don't know if they're involved in the murder, actually, but he put them on a trial to show that he was against this and that he wasn't involved. And there's photos of her like at the trial. So you can see her there, like sitting in, taking notes on what was happening, almost like almost studying what it means to be against Mussolini. Jeez. 
yeah she got very focused and very that kind of religious fervor of focus kind of zoned Absolutely in determined mm. you know what she should have done she should have actually hit the the firing range and like practiced her shot a little bit <laughs> <laughs> just saying so it's the 17th of april 1926 we have violet who's a 50 year old woman seventh time 17th 7th of April. Yeah, I have the 7th. I trust... Well, you guys are obviously wrong. It's the 7th of April, 1926, and Violet is 50 years old. She's a 5 foot 1, so she's a small woman with wiry white hair and probably the most inconspicuous woman you'd ever imagine who's decided today is the day I'm going to kill Mussolini. There's a big comparison between her and him, so between Violet and Mussolini that the description that you gave kind of a wiry small woman and Mussolini there's obviously loads of images of him parading himself around Italy with topless just showing off his masculinity so it's yeah there's a massive kind of difference in the two of them he was a little fella too though wasn't he yeah but he liked to to portray himself as masculine and big and strong and stuff but yeah was he actually little was this a he was he was quite short I think oh okay I'm looking now. How tall yeah. is Peppa Pig? No, Mussolini. <laughs> so tall. How tall you. is Peppa Pig? I don't know why Google wants me to know that. I want He's to know that. He's 1.69. What's 1.69 in feet? <laughs> 1.69 meters to feet. Uh, five foot five. Okay. He's 169,000 inches. What? Okay. He's five five. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I do this with Google? Why did Google do this to me? Okay. He's only five five, right? Five five. Um, mm-hmm. Is Hitler was wee enough as well, wasn't he? Or is he all right? Is he? No, Hitler was <laughs> tall enough. Is he? Oh, Hitler was all right. Was he? Uh, I should probably rephrase that. Um, how tall was Napoleon? Because I think wasn't the thing that he wasn't actually that short. No, yeah, he was actually quite average for it at the time. Yeah, yeah. I think it was the British kind of start room make make making rumors on that though. Just... Is that their main form of attack? Like we'll tell people you're Whoa. short. Peppa the pig is seven feet one inch. Peppa, Peppa, the, pig Peppa, Peppa the pig. Seven Peppa feet. The pig. Peppa the pig. <laughs> Peppa pig is seven feet. Yeah, that's very tall. She used to get a few pork chops out of her. Oh, and here's the first question: Why is Peppa Pig seven foot tall? <laughs> <laughs> Can we start a new podcast? Is Peppa Pig in any way yeah. Irish? Can we? I'm sure. I'm sure she or he left Ireland. I have no idea. Peppa seems female. Peppa female. Peppa the pig. It Peppa is the pig. Oh no, we're racist <laughs> Italians now, folks. <laughs> that it's that time in the podcast when oh. we turn racist. It's oh. <laughs> our new segment <laughs> of the podcast. No. Make fun of Italians. Okay, keep it going. So I just introduced the day and the time and the age. Does anyone else have like a, a kind of uh, running commentary on the day or anything? She got up that morning and went to mass, which I just, I don't know, I find that like a really interesting detail that it's like a, definitely something very religious. Like it has to get up, go to mass. She's, I don't know, do you ask for forgiveness before you go and shoot the leader of the fascist? She asked for a good shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might have been a better, yeah, better prayer. But she started, her plan was to walk to the fascist headquarters. So she didn't really like know where he'd be. She was just kind of going to hang around the fascist headquarters. And if you, also I looked up the fascist headquarters and it's really creepy. Like everyone should have known they were the bad guys early on. It's just like this big face and it just had C, 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 like yes, 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 yes. Written all across. It sounds like something from like Star Wars or something. You know, it's like the bad guys are these. Yeah. I'm thinking 1984. Yeah. It's very 1984. Like if you if you look it up, it's just really creepy. But uh, on her way there, so she was walking for about like an hour towards the Piazza del 
Campadillo. And it's the was it the College of Surgeons, Dara? Yeah, so he was leaving uh, an international congress of surgeons. Yeah. Yeah, so it, like she just happened to meet him there. That wasn't planned. That wasn't where she had planned to do it. And she managed to like squeeze her way right up to the front, got within like point blank range. She pulled out her gun and shot at him, but he had turned his head like right at the last minute because some schoolboys had broken out into like the fascist song and she missed him by like, well, she didn't miss him. She hit his nose like just about like scraped the skin and she tried to shoot him again, but her gun jammed. Um, and this is when like the crowd went absolutely mad. Not like the crowd went wild, like the crowd went after her. Well, it seems it seems that she fired one shot and it grazed him and then he seemed to turn and look at her and the two of them kind of, I, I, they must have locked eyes for like a split second. Yeah. And then she fired again. And then, so it probably all happened in less than a second, but I just, that image for me, like probably yeah. lasts years in the heads of them. But um, yeah, and then she was damn near lynched by the crowd before the police luckily managed to get her into a car and she was arrested because uh, a person, another, another would be executor of our assassin, another would be assassin of Mussolini wasn't so lucky and they were actually killed on the spot by an angry crowd. So she could have had the same fate were the police not quick enough to get, to get rid of her. In Mussolini's biography, um, he writes that he would have been upset if he died from her. <laughs> he said he was ready for a beautiful death as he, as he called it, but not one from an old, ugly, repulsive woman. Who came from the abroad in groups? Harsh. Oh yeah, yeah. I thought Jesus. he was gonna say like shithole country or pull a Trump there, but yeah, yeah. Um, she wasn't. She wasn't the type of person he wanted to be killed by. Put it that way. That's <laughs> yeah. She wrote a letter from when she was like arrested by the police. She wrote a letter back to her friend. So it's interesting here, Mussolini side. So what she said was, "The people sat on me, but the brave police saved my life. My heart was filled with sweetness and a great love. I just shut my eyes and made no resistance." So she had this like religious, almost like martyring. I've, yeah, par- I've, I've paraphrased a bit of that, but um, yeah, it was almost like she was accepting becoming a martyr. Mad, isn't it? Yeah. But the Italian people were very, very angry at this. And around the country, communists and foreigners were attacked by black shirts. And there was, well, what, what, what I read was there's fury on the streets of Italy for what this woman did. We haven't actually said what black shirts are. Um, so bla- like black shirts were basically his to show that you were part of the fascist movement because... Uh, stormtroopers. Stormtroopers, essentially, yeah. But because fascists <laughs> were all separate groups at the start, the black shirt was to show unity under Mussolini. So that was his like way to bring them together. So just to clarify that. Sorry, Daryl, what were you going to say? No, I was just about to say that we have to remember that we're looking back at Mussolini with modern eyes and a modern look. While at the time he was seen as a, as a good guy. So yeah, yeah. The King of England had just awarded him the Order of Bath. I don't know what that was, but he's allowed to go for a bath. In he yeah. sent him a bath. Um, <laughs> and British journalists were also reporting that they were glad that his trim, handsome black shirt lads were doing a fine job job at keeping down the like the left wing. So yeah, it's cool though. Who, how many like people sent their regards back to Mussolini to be like, "Oh, we're happy you're alive." So like Pope Pius said. Mussolini must have been protected by God. Like the president of France, the US, Germany, uh, King George of England all sent their regards. And so did W.T. Cosgrave, who was the president of Ireland at the time as well. So that's actually a recording. So you can listen to that recording of him saying, you know, the great Mussolini, we're glad you're okay, kind of thing. 
once Violet was arrested, she was questioned by police and she gave the reason of why she attacked Mussolini. She said that it was for God's work and that she worked alone. So what I have here is that she um, she said she shot him for the glory of God and that the dead people were her accomplices in shooting him. So all the victims of Mussolini's violence. So yeah, we we kind of skipped over the fact that when she was in Italy, you know, she allegedly met up with a lot of communist groups in like the working class areas. So there's theories that she had been involved, like as part they were kind of using her as an assassin almost. Um, so some people were saying that she was kind of sidestepping it, using God as an excuse to be to not bring more attacks on socialists as well. And she actually sent another letter to one of her friends because uh, she seemed to be like weaving stories to them, telling, changing her story each day. And she said to, in a letter to her friend, good God knew what he was doing when he gave me an Irish tongue to get me out of tight places. Oh, <laughs> dirty. Did you say oh, she? dirty? <laughs> 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 Moving swiftly on, her, her family and the British Foreign Office basically claimed insanity. So she would either be convicted and shot or they could claim insanity and try and get her repatriated to, um, at this time, her family had obviously moved to England because post-1922, Ireland was a free state, so her family were all back in England. Um, so... Yeah, a psychology report said she was a chronic paranoic, which I didn't know was a thing. I've never heard of paranoic. No, I didn't even know paranoic is a word, no. but I like it. It sounds like something you would say, Osh. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sounds like a radiohead song. It does. <laughs> uh, so basically, and it came to the kind of a head and Mussolini wanted it sorted and wanted it just kind of dealt with. And he seemed to use it as a bit of um, a goodwill with the British Foreign Office. So he said, listen... She's obviously, you know, has some mental problems. He probably said it in a less PC way. But, you know, with for goodwill, the British, you can come collect her and bring her back home and she can go to a, a an asylum. The family also sent a very groveling message to Mussolini saying, you know, oh, we're so sorry. You're beautiful. You're wonderful. Blah, blah, blah. So a lot of, lot of faff. Yeah. And uh, her like extradition was a bit mad. So she was kind of lied to her sister, Constance, who was the one that would kind of dealt with most of it the rest of the family seemed to not want anything to do with it and Constance came over and their plan was to bring her back to London by train and they did that but she was taken back with like nurses and police kind of in plain clothes around her the whole way without her knowing so she seemed to think she was going back to freedom rather than to be going back to be committed to an asylum yeah, it, it, I don't really quite understand why they did that. Like, they're not just like put her handcuffs and say, you're going over here. Whereas they literally had her believe that she was walking around freely, yet there was like undercover cops and stuff following her. Like, it was really strange. Yeah, maybe they thought it was easier just to control her and less hassle or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah it's just yeah. a, yeah. But she, yeah, she was admitted into St. Andrew's Hospital and she died there in 1956. And I think this is nearly one of the saddest parts about this is that there was no mourners at her funeral. It's just a, I, that sentence just is kind of haunting, isn't it? Tara, that's not the saddest oh, part. No, oh. no, that's not the saddest oh, no. part, Tara. Oh, this is where it gets awful. <laughs> well, first of all, it's called St. Andrew's Lunatic Asylum, which it's just not a, a thing we say anymore, but that was like the parlance at the time. I just, even just calling it a lunatic asylum brings up horrible images of like patient treatment. But so when she's in St. Andrews, once she realized that she was kept there, she wrote letters to friends and family. And these letters are still in the files in St. Andrews because they were never sent 
like she had no contact there was some let friends who wrote to her and those letters are kept in her file as well and she never saw them either she wrote to the queen appealing for clemency and she was like oh no i've, I've been in your house i've been in buckingham palace loads like can i can you please and this was like she'd been there so long that Mussolini had become a bad guy by this stage she declared war in england yeah so yeah, in 1940 Mussolini declared war on britain which is she was there 13 years at this stage right so she's getting on yeah she's what 60 61 or, or so at this stage and she wrote a letter to Churchill, like pleading her case, like saying, I shot my, I saw this coming. And that letter was never sent. And Princess Elizabeth as well, seemingly. Yeah. On Princess Elizabeth's 18th birthday, because that would have been her debutante ball. So she wrote to her being like, I've been to Buckingham Palace. Like your family, your, pa- your parents came to my house in Dublin. You know, and her, her quote from that is, I'm quite simply hoping you have a heart. And it's just like, this is an old woman now. And every time she writes these letters, they're never sent. Mm. And then these are all really sad. But the most horrible and heartbreaking part is that every year, like doctors reevaluated her and found her, in quotes, delusional and grandiose. But because of what she said, she's like, I shot Mussolini. I'm proud of it. And they're like, okay, she's obviously still delusional that, you know, that, that she still thinks what she did was a good thing. But then the narrative changed when the new doctors arrived because, Connor? Yeah, the, the new doctor arrived in the 1950s and he said that she was delusional. She agree, he agreed with the past diagnosis. She was delusional. But the reason she's delusional is because she claimed to be in there because she shot Mussolini. So the old guard and all the pay, there were so many people that had passed through that they didn't realize that she actually had done it. So they thought that was her delusion that she shot him. So it's just very, quite a sad moment that like that was her one claim to fame. And even the doctors were saying like, this is just some crazy old woman who thinks she's done this or that. It's it's almost like, uh, have you read um, The Psychopath Test by um, John Ronson? No. Nope. Oh, it's great. It, it's, um, you should definitely read it. But it's about a guy who's in this uh, insane asylum because he pleaded insanity to get a lighter sentence. But then he was committed and he spent his life trying to get out. Sounds like one floor of the cuckoo's nest. It basically, yeah, but it's it's like, how do you prove you're not insane? Everything you do becomes like, oh, if I do this, I'm going to be insane. If I don't do this, I'm going to be insane, which makes you neurotic and paranoid and then act insane. And it's just this like horrible, continuous cycle. Yeah, and well, it seems like, you know, it seems like she had some very serious mental issues, but it just, she was born into an era where they probably wouldn't be able to be addressed in any way. Yeah. So she's 80 years old when she died. There was no public announcement. And the last document in her file was a letter from the doctor to her nephew. And he said her passing was a peaceful one and there are no matters outstanding with the accounting department. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, no. So it just went down to numbers and money. It literally, it was like, oh, you know, it's okay. It's not all bad news. You don't know know anything. Oh. And it gets a bit worse as well because oh she left money. Yeah, I know this this lightheartedness just doesn't go well here. So she left money to be buried in St Andrews, the church with a requiem mass, and she left uh, money for the service. And she also left a hundred pounds for her headstone, which in today's money is about two thousand five hundred pounds. Um, and the average tombstone today costs because I looked it up. Uh, 916 pounds which is about 36 pounds then so she left about three times the amount of money for the headstone that she needed um but her she was buried without a requiem mass 
not in St. Andrews and her tombstone was made out of quarry stone, which is the absolute cheapest like offcut you can get. So her family just completely just abandoned her, didn't respect her wishes. It's heartbreaking. Um yeah, just that that's her end. I had nowhere to go with that sentence. No, I think that's okay. Yeah. I think that's a good end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Just> the word <laughs> end. <laughs> I think this is my favorite one. Like I think this Really? It's well, very, it, very interesting. It's definitely it's a good one and I think it's um a lot of the other ones we've done there's loads of podcasts on. So the more you look into her story, the more just how tragic it is and just like the lack of understanding over mental illness and then her reliance on religion and and reading into religious things to give herself like Um, yeah but imagine like this batty old woman in a in a in an asylum oh i shot Mussolini. of course you did helen (laughs) take your tablets (laughs) and i'm the genghis khan (laughs) like oh just just madness So that's it. That's the story of Violet Gibson. It just goes to show you how one second could have changed the course of history and did change the course of history for one Irish woman. I hope you enjoyed it and you'll join us again next week where we'll explore the great, the good, the bad, the ugly of Irish society. Music for the podcast is written and recorded by the talented Jordan O'Leary. Thanks and see you next time.